0: Hello, this is Brad Redderson and welcome to Stranova's interview series, an audio program exploring the intersection between cutting-edge business strategies and the innovations that can ignite business growth. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With our over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Stranova's interview series. Have you ever wanted to see the future? And if that were possible, have you ever imagined you could look at a region around you, the villages, towns, and cities, and have the power to extrapolate how they might evolve under a variety of assumptions? With no planning, with some planning, with man-made change, with change brought from the outside, whether intentional or by accident? And where that vision would be a rich interactive vision with you being able to walk into an immersive environment so you could literally feel like you were a part of that future and not just an observer? And then, having seen what has come about, have you ever imagined you could actually change the course of that future? Before I go on, I want you to pause and think about that for a minute. What would it be like, and how might you and those around you use it for positive, even groundbreaking, experimental change to make the world, in reality, not just in words, a much better place? Well, thanks to an incredible innovation called the decision theater, what you just imagined is now possible. Yes, I know it sounds like a television show that might be on late at night on the BBC or on America's public broadcasting system, but it's actually an immersive interactive visual environment for collaborative decision making that probably goes far beyond anything you may have imagined in the earlier part of my introduction here. It was developed by a team of brilliant engineers psychologists, graphics wizards, and visualization experts in and on behalf of Arizona State University at their Tempe, Arizona campus just outside of Phoenix. The core technology part of this is what is known as the drum, a 260 degree faceted screen that can display panoramic computer graphics or 3D video content in a wide enough angle to envelop you in its vision. Multiple computer systems drive the display which in turn is placed in an environment where up to 25 people can sit comfortably and the system includes tools to collect participant input and interaction with the displays. Other systems that do some of this exist elsewhere in the world, including many based on Silicon Graphics Reality Center concept, but those are, for the most part, used for closed scientific, medical, industrial, and military applications. The decision theater is uniquely different in three ways. The first is in its, to date at least, emphasis on modeling for urban planning, something you'll hear more about in the podcast that follows. The second is in its openness to all comers who are interested in exploring how to use it for decision making. And the third is in its unique set of interactive data gathering and interaction tools for those attending such simulations based on detailed psychological research on how to make such interactions as effective as possible. The power of simulation is well known in many fields, but it is for me the applications and the true creative vision of this unique endeavor that set it apart. Clients of this system have included city councils and planners, school districts, zoning committees, legislative commissions, private developers, state agencies, and disaster recovery organizations from all over the world. Current major collaborators using the Decision Theater involve public and private regional growth planning in the Middle East and China, with one of the more deeply involved partnerships taking place right now, in Dubai. To tell us about it, we are joined today by Dr. Deirdre Hahn, Interim Director of the Decision Theater. She has an extensive background in research and applications of immersive visualization, how such an approach augments decision making in individuals and groups, and how social, moral, and temporal perceptions of science influence choices in policy and education. She holds a PhD in educational psychology, a master's in counseling psychology, and a bachelor's degree in psychology from Arizona State University. We are very pleased to have her with us today to talk about this groundbreaking innovation. Okay, well Deirdre, thanks for joining us on Stranova.
1: Well thanks Brad, thanks for having me.
0: Well for the first question here, to get us all grounded on what we're talking about, what exactly is the decision theater?
1: The Decision Theater is a facility at Arizona State University, and we opened our doors back in May of 2005. And our primary focus here is to bring science together with the community, and the community meaning the public, really. So this is a forum, a set of technologies where we bring the best science solutions and applications and take those out to the public so that we can make better policy decisions.
0: With computing power growing, graphic systems becoming even more advanced, and display technology changing dramatically over even just the past five years, using large display computer visualization to guide decision-making is becoming more common. What makes the decision theater itself different from some of those other solutions out there that perhaps a few of our listeners might be already knowing about?
1: Well, I think what makes us different, at least from the facilities that I'm aware of in this country and also abroad, is that we are focused on our community. Many visualization centers are often attached to either a university or some industry, and they're used for internal purposes. So, for example, Iowa State University has a center that's called VRAC, and while VRAC is a phenomenal set of technologies for visualizing very large-scale information, its focus is mostly on engineering and production. So, you know, it it really leverages the faculty, faculty research, and ongoing researcher efforts. The decision theater at Arizona State University, while we work closely with uh, a set of faculty here, what we do is most of our clients, our sponsors, uh, customers, if you will, uh, are community members. These are city councils, their planning and zoning commissions, mayors state agencies, commissions that are appointed by the governor, and even private developers. That makes up a large segment of our working groups here at the theater.
0: So communities at large can have access to this. I'm assuming this is still for a fee as a service, or are there groups in turn that you tend to try to support almost on a pro bono basis?
1: You know, we do have some amount of pro bono work. We certainly work very hard at supporting the university's mission to have a more social embeddedness and a global presence. And so some of our work is centered around making sure that we are meeting that mission. And so we invite often lots of visitors. We've had almost 6,000 people through our doors in just two short years. And of those, those are delegations from around the world. They are uh, academics that visit from other universities. They're industry folks, private citizens. And so we do engage in quite a bit of outreach, which I guess you can call it pro bono, but it's a very integral part of what we do here. There are projects, however, that when we first opened our doors, we took on a number of projects for less than they cost today. And that was so that we could really get our feet wet and see what we were good at. This was such a new concept that we were throwing our net wide and trying to bring on as many varied projects that we could, get our arms around the technology and the capability and the capacity of our facility and focus. And that's what we've been doing over the last year is really focusing in on the public policy piece as it relates to urban growth and natural resource planning
0: it occurs to me that as the listeners are trying to imagine this there's probably all sorts of things swirling in their minds tell me what it's like to walk into the decision theater and what the experience is like for a user
1: (laughs) that's great you say that because I actually was thinking to myself that you know in our mind's eye every one of us has a sort of different perception or concept of information and when groups come together and collaborate That is often one of the biggest barriers is everybody sometimes called getting on the same page, but I think about it as everybody sort of having the same mind's eye, looking at this through the same lens. So in order for me to tell the listeners, I will do my best to describe what is usually a very visual experience for folks who come here. When you first walk in the door, we have a lobby that is filled with plasma screens. And those plasma screens play many of our exemplar projects a video of who we are and what we do, and kind of key visual components of our projects. And then we have a large executive boardroom where the board table is integrated with the theater itself, and then you walk through the boardroom and into the hallway, there's two sets of doors, and it leads into the center of the facility, and that is what we call the drum. And the drum is where the visualization center lives. That's where we have our computer cluster our control room and inside the center of the drum seven screens 260 degrees floor to ceiling with seating capacity up to about 35 individuals the room can reconfigures in three ways we have auditorium style seating we have conference room style and we have theater style and the theater style involves cushy chairs and couches the conference room style is really for workshops, seminars, groups that are coming in and really plowing through their data and the visualizations and collaboration on that. And then the auditorium styles for presentations of information. Each of the screens has its own rear-projected digital projector. The uh, specs of the technology and what's involved in the theater is on our website so i won't get into that but essentially we have the capability to show stereo 3d which means everybody wears the 3d glasses a 3d mono every screen can be treated individually or as one contiguous screen which is what we primarily do with most of our, our large immersive visualizations. then really the key component here and i i think i want the listeners to understand that the decision theater is more than just a facility. It really goes much beyond the technology. And that is what we do here is we have a process. We have a methodology. And we have a content. That's what we develop. And So it's not just enough that groups come in and see things on the screen. It's really we offer a whole solution kit, everywhere from collaboration tools software to modeling and simulation tools and software to visualization models. And all of those three things, all of those work together in concert to, develop, to create a whole experience for the participants.
0: That's very good. I appreciate the detail. I understand from what we've been through at Silicon Graphics, when you walk into something like this, you really become conscious of being part of it, this whole thing. It isn't you separate from it. It just doesn't work that way.
1: Yeah, you know, that's really a wonderful way of setting it. It's a whole system, and participants are a part of the entire system. They're not external to it.
0: So what kind of modeling problems are the most common ones that you tend to evaluate using the decision theater? And what kind of users come to you to investigate those issues?
1: Most of the solutions are centered around urban growth and natural resource planning. For urban growth, we look at things like rapidly urbanizing regions. And what does that mean in terms of transportation planning, water, quality of water, air pollution? In our case here in the valley in Phoenix, we worry about heat. Uh, The more we pave and the varied materials that we use on buildings as we urbanize so rapidly have a huge impact on our temperatures here uh, in the central part of the city. And we have to worry about that because as we move from approximately 7.5 million people across the state into about 13 to 14 million people as projected into 2050 across the state, we're talking about a magnificent amount of concrete and materials that are going to be in place to accommodate all of these people that are going to be coming to Arizona. And here's where it becomes really important to understand how ASU's decision Theater connects science to the community because what we do is we take some of the best applications and research solutions that are being generated here in our School of Sustainability or our Global Institute of Sustainability, and we take those and we integrate them into the models and the information we combine for our project. So for example, we have a group here on campus that worries about the urban heat island effect. And they have models and they have simulations and they have information and data that when we work with a city council group who is trying to plan their general plan or comprehensive plan update, that we will bring them together. And in the theater space, they can see what some of the solutions are and they can think through how can we adopt these in our city. And then even to extend that, we will build with the city, with the sponsor, models and what-if scenarios that they can try on virtually.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned the urban heat island. I had recently heard about that whole effect in conjunction with, of course, your current heat wave, where one of the comments that was made was that in addition to it being just plain hot, the reality of a city existing in that environment is that it absorbs heat during the day, re-radiates during the night, so that when you start out the next morning, you're actually at a hotter start than you would have been if the city hadn't been there in the first place. So modeling that is a fairly complex issue, I'm sure.
1: It's very complex, and you are absolutely right. We can't dissipate the heat at night. And in a desert, in an arid environment, that is absolutely important it's vital to the natural resources, and particularly to water conservation. It's something we think about a lot. When I say we, the cities, the state agencies, certainly the researchers here at the university that specialize in that, but here's where it gets interesting. Some of the most rapidly urbanizing regions in the world are in arid areas, arid environments. And so the tools that we're building here and trying on, if you will, in our city, in our region, are going to be able to extend globally to other like regions, and it doesn't necessarily have to be an arid environment, but certainly other places that maybe seemingly would have enough water, uh, you know, places that are a little bit more tropical, are often surprisingly in severe drought. What our hope is that the things that we're creating today, the work we're doing today, will of course then extend out and and have it more of a, a national and eventually an international or global reach.
0: Could you give us an example of one or more of the more interesting and or successful, the applications of the theater that you've been involved with recently?
1: Sure. Well, I can think of two. Let me start with the first one. We have a city here, what we used to call a fringe city to the Phoenix metropolitan area, and the name of the city is Surprise. So uh, if you hear me say Surprise, so again, that's the name of the city, and they have been a partner with us for probably the last year and a half. And the City of Surprise's community development director came through the theater on a tour, on a demonstration, and stayed for quite a while afterwards and said, you know, I'm pretty new to my position, but I see an amazing amount of potential here, and I want to work with you and the Decision Theater team, and I want us to work to help the city envision what their growth is going to be like. We're getting ready to go through a general plan update. We're going through a water study, transportation study. You know, we're trying on everything, but I I see this as the place where we can put it all together in mass, if you will. And off we were running. And what we did is we worked with them to acquire information all the way from water studies about the number of washes, which is where rainwater runs off in the desert. Those are very important to the environment the number of washes, the number of cubic feet per second each wash uh, could accommodate. Uh, We looked at transportation, planned transportation, current road structure, all the way up to number of schools and population dwelling units, density issues. In any case, we compiled all of these, and we put it into a tool that essentially allowed us to play what-if scenarios. And using these slider bar assumptions, high-resolution aerial photographs of the entire region, layers and layers of information about the water use, the transportation, the land use, the dwelling units and such. Um, and if any of your listeners have ever used Esri products or ArcView, it's similar to that, but yet we have created a very complex model behind it with all of this data. The city council comes into the theater and they say, you know, okay, let's imagine for a moment we put non-buildable buffers around certain washes in our region, in our city. How will that impact the number of dwelling units that can be built in that area? And then how will the number of dwelling units drive the amount of revenue back to the city? How many school children can we expect to be there based on these assumptions? How many roads will we need? Uh, what will be the carbon footprint? How much water will be required at that point? And all we do is we simply move a slider, run, hit go, run the model, and everything changes on the screen in real time, it recalculates. And then the city council or planning and zoning commission or even public members can then see the results of their decisions and then plan from there. Go, oh, okay, that's what might happen if we make this policy decision. Let's think about that.
0: Well, very impressive. And you've actually gone through and described a bit of some of the tools involved. I'm now curious and at the risk of making a likely very overworked pun, were there any surprises uh, or significant new insights that came up in the process of carrying out this particular project? (laughs)
1: Well, yeah, there are a lot of surprises. And, you know, they also use the same pun uh, frequently. The surprise was that the city was going to have to really rethink, I guess, how they were going to define density. And they were also a bit surprised by the long-term impact of their decisions. What seems to happen sometimes is that folks in decision-making positions, and not just surprised but in general from what we've seen here, sometimes have just kind of a short-term view. And what we help to provide is some more of that long-range, longer-term picture of what could happen. And so while some folks might say, well, you know, here's a really good solution for this situation. Let's just make a big part of our community all 55 and and over communities. Then we don't have to necessarily worry about schools or uh, having enough transportation or bus routes or, or things of that nature. But then we can assume that in the model, and we can look to see how that might play out over time. And while you know the surprise is sometimes more about, oh, wow, the decision I make today, while it might seem insignificant, or it might seem like it could solve something in the moment, in the long run, it is really going to be a monumental uh, shift
0: and I'm sure that the flip side of that is that people also begin to realize that a decision made in a different direction uh, one step at a time can also have a significant impact multiplied from now into the future you know so for example when one talks about some of the global warming issues or energy consumption if you yourself were to make one less trip or to use one more recyclable thing or to turn off the power for one more hour a day the implications are staggering when they're multiplied and people don't actually realize it. they just assume that one person can't make an impact.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's incremental, really, and I think that maybe some of what I've been describing has been on a, you know, a very large scale, on a macro scale, but maybe perhaps one of the greatest lessons that some of our participants learn is that incremental change, incremental shifts have a much larger impact down the line than sometimes big huge changes all at once. But that's never more true than when we look at our water planning and have some of our water planning tools here in place and, and we bring in water managers and stakeholders and city members and we let them play out things like drought scenarios. Let's simulate a drought on the Colorado River system and play it out over the next 20 years. Oh, and by the way, let's go ahead and put a policy into place that says that we will not exceed 150 gallons per person per day. What does that look like? How does that change our water portfolio for Mm. the next 20 years? What can people start to expect to see happen for residential water use, for commercial water use? And these are things that we can do right now today.
0: Well, as we speak about incremental change, obviously a big change a little over two years ago was the Decision Theater came to be. And I'd like to know a little bit about how the idea for the whole Decision Theater came up and how it came into being in the first place is two different challenges.
1: Well, you know, I've been here for two years. You know, I sometimes just put my head down and I work, 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 and every once in a while, I get the privilege of going to things like the Media X Conference over at Stanford University. And I am exposed to folks who have been in the industry and have been a part of the planning, if you will, of these kinds of practices and technologies for years. Sometimes when I present, I have people in the audience that say, "Hey, We've been thinking about that for 20 years. <laughs> it's amazing you've implemented it. To get more down to the finer grain of how Decision the Theater at ASU came to be, we just talked to look only as far as our president, Michael Crow, and some of the other strategic initiatives and vice presidents that are currently still on campus. And they would get together and talk about what would it be like if we could have some kind of facility or some sort of method so that When policy decisions need to be made, we can inform them with science. You know, how do we bring those two things together? Because so many times you think about the dissemination of scientific information and outcomes, it often hits uh, academic journals, you know, very specific journals that focus in on research and statistical outcomes and empirical evidence. And then sometimes those are picked up then by more of a scientific American or science magazine and then disseminated to a wider audience. And then those are picked up then by maybe other media outlets that are more for a general audience. And then that information has been picked up by magazines that things go out in mass and you might see it in the grocery line as you're waiting to check out. And by the time it reaches a public person, it's sometimes two, three, four years old, the dissemination process has diluted the information to the point where it, it can be stated in two or three lines, two or three sentences or less. And the public, you know, it's like, oh, wow, that's a new discovery. Well, actually, in fact, no, that, you know, that happened a couple of years ago and we've moved on to the next phase. So you get folks in policy and public affairs and public administration and they want to make that process faster. and then. Help the legislators, the the decision makers of the cities, regions, and ultimately, you know, bigger than that, understand that there is science information now, today, that we can help to inform their decisions. How do we do that? Well, wow. You know, what's the one thing that helps people all get on the same page? Well, some sort of picture. So we, you know, started thinking about it, put a team into place, and we got computer scientists, public administration experts, psychology people in sustainability, and they all you know, spent anywhere from three to six years planning this place out. And in some ways, it was a dream. It was really a dream. You know, often there are things the university setting where, you know, academics, administration, they plan sort of a dream facility or a dream research center. And it may or may not get funded. It may or may not get picked up. In our case, they were able to turn on one of our local developers here, Ira Fulton, who also is one of a significant benefactor to the university itself, and share the vision of the Decision Theater prototype or concept with him. And he says, absolutely, I get it. I get it right now, and I would like to help out with that. And that's how we are here.
0: Well, how did you get involved in this? Because I know your path is a little unexpected, probably, is to get involved in this sort of thing from your own background.
1: Yeah, definitely wasn't expected. Well, my background is interesting. I started out as a criminal justice major as an undergrad, and even before that I should probably say that I was the first person in my family to go to, to college. And I always knew that an education was really going to be in my eyes, the way for me to advance both the things that interested me, but my career options. So I was always invested and dedicated to school and to education, but I had so many paths I was trying to take at once, so I was in criminal justice, I was an English major for a while, then I was going to do pre-law, and then I did pre-med, and then finally I decided, well, I'm just going to pick psychology, because you know what? I have almost every credit needed (laughs) and that's the one that will get me out of school the fastest. Well, the two years I spent just really drilling down into the psychology curriculum, I loved. Between there I I got married and I had a child and uh, I graduated with my undergrad degree in clinical psychology and then went on to photography where I spent kind of wandering the halls of the art department and and thinking that I was going to have a career in photography. All the while, I was working in an office where I was giving psychological tests to police officer applicants, which I did for a number of years, decided I wanted to go back and engage more in counseling and working one-on-one with clients who were experiencing adjustment issues and trying to figure out life issues. That turned into a master's degree in psychology, and I spent some time doing counseling in a rehabilitation hospital for stroke survivors more of an older population who were also dealing with things like hip replacements, shoulder replacements, and, and, you know, sort of just general rehabilitation issues. Then I went back to school for my Ph.D. in counseling psychology, and I worked on some projects that were through my advisor funded by the National Institute of Health, and it was doing some of the psychology testing for parts of the second stage of the Human Genome Project. And I did that for some time, and then I ended up switching programs to educational psychology because it was just more in line with what my focus was, which was in science learning. How do people learn science? How do they think about it? And really, interestingly enough, what is in their mind's eye when they think about things like evolution and time, large, large expanses of time, deep time, I guess is what it's called. Uh, So that's what my dissertation was about. It was about uh, how individuals conceptualize and think about evolution, creation, and deep time and space. While I was in my Ph.D. program, keeping busy, I did a lot of service work. I volunteered. I was on a number of committees, and that led to being the president of the Graduate Student Association for Arizona State University, which led to a number of public speaking engagements. I moderated panel discussions and, and that kind of thing. And one night I was in the audience, I was going to watch panel discussion about public policy and ethics in the media, and the moderator didn't show up, and they turned to me and said, hey, you know, you've done this before, could you moderate? And I said, I don't know anything about public policy ethics in the media. How am I going to moderate this? They said, we don't have anybody else. You have to be the person. So I said, okay, I'll come at this from sort of a counseling perspective. I can, I can assess it from that way. I did a fine job, I guess. I was the person who who kept the meeting on track and did the summation at the end and the final words and so on. Well, in the audience, little did I know, was a new executive director for a thing called the Decision Theater, which at that point in time, I had no idea what it was. People around me knew and they were getting really excited about it and saw me speak and said, huh, she might be a good person for our communication and outreach position, Uh, you know, if he was putting his team together. A couple weeks later, I met him at a luncheon, coincidentally, I didn't know who he was, but he said, hey, I saw you speak, let's talk a little bit more about what you're doing after you graduate. I had already been shortlisted for a couple of assistant professor tenure track positions to other universities, and I was on an academic path, that's where I was going with my career. And then after probably 10, 15 different conversations with our executive director now, whose name is Rick Shangra, I was convinced that this would be a really amazing opportunity, and if I passed it up, I would probably look back and think, wow, I should have tried that out. It also kept me closer to home. And so they brought me on as the Assistant Director for Communication and Outreach. It turns out that I had some skills in business development and project management, so I was then realigned and made the Assistant
0: Director of Solution Services. And then
1: just recently, over in the last week, I was appointed interim director.
0: Well, congratulations. Thank you. Well, thinking about things over time is also part of not only who you were when you did your thesis, but also what you're doing with the Decision Theater. I'd like to know about your own long-term dreams for this project, and let me put it more specifically. If you could tackle virtually any problem there might be on the planet using this powerful resource that you have right there at home, what would you like to pursue?
1: When we think about you know, where we're going into the future and what would I like to pursue, it goes beyond just the network opportunity here and sharing of information. I really feel as though that the information sharing is going to be centered around things like urban planning and natural resource planning. Our home here in the university is with the Global Institute of Sustainability. And so a lot of our focus, our efforts, are on projects that are related to urban growth, natural resources, resources. There are regions in the world that don't have that same kind of access that we've built here at the university, and so in addition to networking around the world, we would hopefully also be able to share our knowledge with other areas, other regions, like urban growth and natural resource planning. Specifically, and this is something we're working on today, we're looking at building facilities in China as well as Dubai. Those are a reality for us, and we are on the path to making that happen. So this idea of having networked decision theaters around the world is going to become a truth we expect within the next two to three years.
0: Quite a dream. Quite a dream. And I have a feeling it will happen, maybe with some of the listeners out there to actually comment on it and contact you so that gets to my next question for those that might be interested in learning more about the decision theater perhaps trying it out for themselves and maybe even working with you on it how should they contact you and learn more
1: well the best way to contact us is through our website and it's decision theater all one word dot org o-r-g and you could just google decision theater and we will be the top hit on there The website itself is a very great introduction to what we do, talks a lot about how we offer solutions. It gives clips and examples of some of our projects and our successes, and it also talks about where we're going into the future. So I think the website is probably the best way to get a hold of myself or anyone else here on the team and find out more.
0: Okay, well Deirdre, thanks very much for joining us on Stranova this week.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Brad.
0: As we close this episode of Stranova, I think this interview is a good opportunity to help us think about all that we mean by a true strategic innovation. Certainly what you just heard described from a technical standpoint is absolutely at what, for now at least, is a pinnacle of engineering achievement. To be able to model the problems of long-term urban growth with as complex a set of variables as have been provided for here is truly remarkable. But what adds the strategic part to the innovation is a combination of the ease of use, the accessibility of that innovation to the planners that need it, plus both its predictive and, yes, even suggestive nature of how the future might evolve. It allows for scenario planning on a scale unimagined only a few years ago true. But even more important, it allows those who may not understand the technology behind it to make use of it, to experiment with it, and via almost a sense of play, to envision the consequences of current actions long before they become irreversible. Further, like the best strategic innovations in all areas, this combines multiple disciplines, advanced computer visualization technology, complex scenario modeling, and even the human psychology of interaction with the innovation in a surprisingly accessible system. For those of you involved in urban planning of all kinds, I highly recommend to you to consider contacting Deidre Hahn and Arizona State University's Decision Theater team for more information. And for those of you working on breakthrough strategic innovations of your own, this is an outstanding model of creativity and collaboration for all of us to consider further. That's our show for this time, and thanks for listening. We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit us at www.stranova.com, write us at ideas at or visit our blog at blog.stranova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 2.5 License by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.